from the Mississippi Humanities Council, you're listening to Ideas on Tap. Monthly panel discussions on issues facing Mississippians today. Hey everybody, this is Carolyn Gillespie from the Mississippi Humanities Council. Welcome to this month's edition of Ideas on Tap held on July 31st at the Flamingo in Jackson, Mississippi. This month, we'll be discussing the ideas of truth and objectivity. You'll hear from Dr. Steve Smith of Millsaps College, LaTanya Altry, a museum professional, and Anna Wolf, a journalist. The program will be moderated by MHC Executive Director, Dr. Stuart Rockoff. My name is Stuart Rockoff. I'm Executive Director of the Mississippi Humanities Council. Thank you for joining us for July's, what we're calling Ideas on Tour. A um, couple things. Uh, we have fans, which if you need to use, we have. We've got, still have some, I think, desserts and, and food in the back. Uh, there is beer for sale and we have waters, so uh, uh, please help yourself. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what this is and what we wanted to do. This summer, um, as you know, for the last almost two years now, we've been having these monthly Ideas on Tap programs at Hallamals, doing different topics. And for the summer, we wanted to sort of change it up a bit, try some different spaces, uh, try some different topics, topics that may be a little more out there, a little more abstract. Um, And so that's what we're doing. Um, And we really want to thank... give a big thanks to all the folks with the Flamingo, um, Ahmad, and also Garrett for helping to set this up. Uh, I've actually never been to this space before. It's really cool, as you can tell. Um, it's also a little bit crowded, so uh, you know, feel free to uh, adjust yourself as you need to. I know some folks may need to leave early and maybe be a little bit self-conscious and kind of scooting out amongst. I know you're, see, um, don't feel self-conscious. Please, you know, um, uh, help yourself. Um, so, uh, so for this summer, we were um, thinking about what topic we could do, and we thought, you know, it's summer, it's July, people are going to the beach, they're, le- you know, sort of reading, you know, light, airy, fun books, so what is the summer beach read for this series? We thought, ah, truth, right? Truth would be the great uh, uh, light topic. Um, not really. Um, What's funny about that? <laughs> exactly, you see? Um, so, oh, a Before I begin, let me give you our uh, legally mandated disclaimer. The opinions expressed tonight are not necessarily those of the Mississippi Humanities Council or the National Endowment for the Humanities. They may be, they may not be. That's for you to figure out. Um, But they're not necessarily that. Uh, All right. Uh, We wanted to think about the idea of truth because um, it's been much in the news lately. And so the idea was to take what may seem to be a simple idea. I mean, if you're giving an exam or taking an exam, what's the easiest or easiest form of an exam? True-false. As someone who's written true-false questions, it's actually kind of hard. But when you're taking it, it's simple. It's true or it's false. That seems to be pretty straightforward. We wanted to take that idea of truth and make it a bit more complicated. And the notion was to bring in three different people who bring three different perspectives on the topic. And we're going to aspire to maybe at the end try to tie them together. It may work. It may not. So again, we're experimenting. Um, So I want to introduce the panel. And I guess we will begin on my far right with Dr. Stephen Smith. Um, um, Stephen grew up in South Florida. He went to school at Florida State in Vanderbilt and earned a PhD from Duke University. He has been a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Millsaps College since 1985. He is a prolific scholar. Um, Last year alone, he has published two works. one entitled Full History on the Meaningfulness of Shared Action and Centering and Extending, an Essay on Metaphysical Sense. Both beach reads, I'm sure, uh, and both published last year. Um, next to him is Anna Wolf. Anna Wolf is the health watchdog reporter for the Clarion Ledger. She has worked at the Clarion Ledger for three years, and if you read the paper, you are, I'm sure, very familiar with her work. She's been on the healthcare beat for about a year. Um, and has covered stories on wide range of topics that relate to health. They include poverty, hunger, access to health care, the opioid epidemic, and medical billing. You can follow her on Twitter at a at at 
Um, A-Y-E Wolf with an E on the end. But you probably already follow her on Twitter, so never mind. Um, and then finally to my right um, is Latanya S. Autry. Uh, she is a cultural organizer in the visual arts who centers social justice and public memory in her work. Her collaborative projects include The Art of Black Descent, Hashtag Museums Are Not Neutral, which we will hear about tonight, and the Social Justice and Museums resource list. Um, she has curated exhibitions and organized programs at the Yale University Art Gallery at Art Space New Haven, the Mississippi Museum of Art at Tougaloo College, and the Crane Art Center. And uh, she has quit all that to focus on writing her dissertation, which she is not doing tonight. So don't make her feel guilty. This is all helpful towards finishing her dissertation. Um, she's working on a PhD in art history from the University of Delaware. Her dissertation is entitled The Crossroads of Commemoration, Lynching Landscapes in America, and uh, which will look at uh, the interplay of race, representation, memory, and public space. So a nice light panel for the summer. Um, and I want to begin by approaching this subject from a philosophical perspective. We actually have a philosopher on the panel. We're very, very excited about uh, um, sort of about it. And I myself took, I think, maybe three philosophy courses in college almost 30 years ago. So I'm sort of an expert on the subject. Um, and uh, back when I was in college, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, the notion of absolute truth was under siege. Um, and this may just be me and my friends, but what we considered a fun thing to do was to sit around our dorm and deconstruct things, not with our hands or with tools, but with our minds. So we'd look at a clock, like, what is the clock? And we kind of, you know, fought through it, you know, what, and sort of deconstructed the notion of time. Um, again, we didn't have much more to do. Um, in class, we were reading postmodern philosophers like Michel Foucault, who explored how things like science and knowledge, things we accept as truth, were actually not absolute truth, but rather they were constructed by those in power. I can't say I understood a lot of those books that I read, but I but got through them that I did. So with that, Steve, I would love for you to talk a little bit um, um, I actually told them, hey, I want you to explain what is truth. You have eight minutes. Um, so um, if you could uh, for a little bit, uh, talk a little bit about truth. Does it exist? How has it been challenged by philosophy over the last several decades? Hi, y'all. Thank you for coming. Stuart has started me uh, reflecting on truth, and it's a difficult challenge because uh, there are some pretty different frames of reference to think about truth in. And the first one is, is just very practical. I mean, there are lots of things we just need to know the truth about. We need to know uh, whether we have enough food to get through the winter. We need to know whether there's fish in that river. We need to know if somebody got murdered. We need to know who did that. You can't imagine living without having any access to truth at that level, of that truths of that kind. That doesn't mean that we get a completely firm and certain grip on the truth about what happened or what exists, but... There's no way we're not trying hard to get that grip, and, and there's no way we could uh, go forward if we didn't get it right a lot of the time. So that's, that's an everyday sense of truth that I think is really almost too obvious to mention, but, but really important. And, and whatever else we say needs to somehow hook back into that. There's another sense of truth that um, I have to think of because I'm a teacher. So I'm in, I, I work in an educational institution, and... Um, my job is to teach people things that they don't already know and to expand their horizons. And it's really a vital assumption in, in this enterprise that there, there are things that people can find out. There are things people can discover. There are things that can be learned. Um, if, if we don't have a functioning uh, uh, access to truth, belief in truth, concept of truth, the whole educational project is in huge trouble. Why would you go to school? Uh, maybe you'd go to school for the same reason you go to a concert, because you just like to hear somebody talk like that. Um, but you wouldn't be going to learn something. You wouldn't be going to engage in inquiry. The whole idea of sincere inquiry presupposes that there's something you could find out. Um, now to the bullshit sessions. Uh, 
yeah. of, uh, about absolute truth. So yeah. philosophy has, has gotten its uh, involved in uh, raising the stakes on the whole truth question. That philosophy really begins, you could say, with a critique of what people ordinarily think is the case. Um, that's all wrong. That's confused. That's not coherent. Uh, Socrates, you know, asks the, all, all these questions about what people think about their lives and reveals that they don't have a coherent account to give of their beliefs. And so Plato uses this to expose a whole new horizon of truth, which is um, abstract truth, you know, pure forms of things, pure possibilities for things. Um, if your mind can engage the pure possibilities for existence rather than these uh, shifty, unreliable, variously describable existing things in our sense experience, um, then uh, you'll have a, a really firm basis for any, uh, anything you want to say is true. You, you, you uh, won't be misled. You, you can't be wrong if your mind has, has apprehended um, the, the, the form of equality or the form of pure justice or uh, uh, something at that level like that. And so that, that becomes a, an idea of what philosophers do. They try to you know, clarify the most that they can about these abstract versions of true reality. And then they use that, they, they stand on that firm ground and they critique um, the various claims that are made in uh, ordinary life, like, you know, political claims about equality. You know, you might, you might, you know, the Democrats are saying one thing about equality and the Republicans are saying another thing about equality and the philosopher in principle can come in and, and test that, you know, can, can sort of lay those claims against the true standard of abstract equality to see how it does and doesn't correspond to that and say, well, you might want to rethink what you're saying because it doesn't, doesn't completely jibe or it doesn't hang together uh, fully well. So th th that's, that's an idea about what philosophers do and how they would be helpful to other people. They would be coming in from this more abstract place that they have reached by reflection, right? I, Stuart has, has charged me with commenting on postmodernism, so I'm now going to take two giant steps and get from Plato to postmodernism. The, the, the first giant step is to the, the, the restart of philosophy with, with Descartes and the idea that we can get access to the, the really firm ground, uh, the really clear and distinct um, vision of, of what is the case uh, by, uh, by just pure reflection, just going into our ideas distinguishing what's clear from what's not clear, what stands up no matter how you, how you think about it from what doesn't stand up. And we find, this, we find these truths in the mind. And once again, they're pretty abstract. He, uh, Descartes calls them innate ideas. But Descartes is, is, uh, is not an unworldly guy like Plato was. He is a very worldly guy. He wants to, he wants to have an ambitious program of science that is based on indubitable truths. And he thinks that this will work. He thinks that on the foundation of indubitable truths clarified by philosophical work, you can then go forth and you can study nature and you can, as long as you don't jump to conclusions, as long as you never go further than the evidence really warrants, thinking carefully about what your evidence is and you know the, the mathematical forms for things. Math is always important. Math is your standard of clarity. It's your, it is clarity. Um, if you proceed on that basis, then um, uh, you will you will have a, a large and growing edifice of truth. And, and it'll be great. And we don't have to have unproductive debates anymore like in politics and, uh, and you know, just popular morals and popular aesthetics and so forth. Well, um, this, is a, this is a program that comes to be called modernism and foundationalism. Those two things really go together closely in the philosophical discussion of this issue. Modernism is, well, for me, modernism means, hey, guys, let's just start all over. Let's just do it. Let's bake our cookies from scratch. Let's just use our, you know, forget tradition, tr forget authority. Let's just use our reason and our sense observation powers and start all over again and get it right this time without, without the, 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 the various kinds of misleading that have contaminated our mental life due to authority and tradition. This is a... Really broad brush uh, good. characterization, but eight minutes, right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, um, uh, that's the modern spirit. Let's start over and get it right. 
the foundationalist spirit is, is this optimism that we, we've got a base to work on and we've got a method that will produce great results. Um, and Descartes is the, the classic inventor of a foundational method. You, you, you go into your mind, you find your clear and distinct ideas, that's the foundation you build on the clear and distinct ideas and everything is golden as long as it's built scrupulously on that foundation. So what is postmodernism? Postmodernism is the late 20th century um, suspicion and elaborate rejection of the modern foundationalist project. Um, and the interesting, the, the philosophically interesting work that it was done by people like Foucault and Derrida was to, to show that the concepts and the uh, supposed uh, uh, touchstone experiences that were appealed to by people like Descartes or Plato um, were really not as firm and not as clear and unambiguous as they presented them as being. So they're, they're actually more ambiguous and slippery and incomplete. What was, what was said to be firm was not so firm. What was said to be a complete basis was actually incomplete. It actually had holes in it. And uh, if you carefully read the texts of people like Descartes and Plato and, and cleverly read them, like Terry does so cleverly in reading uh, these classic texts, you will see everywhere the telltale signs, the slippage, uh, the, the soft spots in, the, in those arguments and the slippage of those words, those key words um, that uh, purported to name things that were there. If you looked in the right way, in the right place, you would see the realities that are there, certainly there. Well, actually, uh, they're not. Actually, it was a bluff. Um, and th that's one way of characterizing postmodernism. It calls the bluff of, 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 of any version of foundationalism, whether it's Descartes' modern version or the, the classic version by Plato. So what does this have to do with practical truth? This is a philosophical discussion about the perhaps uh, ridiculously uh, overambitious reach for an absolute truth, which ordinary people never think they have. I mean, ordinary people know that they could be wrong about anything. I mean, they have a relative confidence in the things that they relatively firmly know and that are important to believe, but uh, this absolute truth premise, which was so, you know, uh, there was, there was, there was a, a lot of salesmanship uh, on the part of people like Plato and Descartes to, uh, to make us believe that philosophy could sort of back up all the checks we write in our beliefs, in our believing and in our claiming of things to be true. Um, well, this, uh, this very premise of absolute truth then seemed to be in deep doo-doo because of the critiques of people like Foucault and Derrida. Wow, 10 minutes or about nine minutes, that's amazing. Sorry. No, it's good, like Plato, Descartes, postmodernism. I mean, that's like, what, six semesters of courses they're crammed into. Uh, that was great. Um, well, and I want to go to Latanya, um, who I think is sort of building on those sort of critiques. So if someone like Descartes was saying that, you know, we can understand and present something that is absolutely true, uh, looking back and challenging those sort of assumptions I think is something that you can sort of relate to, that the idea that what purports to be truth and knowledge and objective may not necessarily be the case, right? Um, that oftentimes those are kind of constructs um, from those in power. So your primary focus is museums. Um, you're wearing your shirt, which I think you sell online or something, uh, which is that neat. So explain to everybody what you mean that museums are not neutral and do museums tell the truth? People will look at me. I was actually in uh, New York last month or something, and one of the museum guards, I was walking around in this really cool show, and he, he came over to me and I thought he was going to yell at me for being too close to something because it happens to me even like everybody else, even though I'm a curator. Um, he came over to me and he said, what does that mean, your shirt? What is that about? And I said, oh, you know, I love having an opportunity to talk about this. Um, the shirt came about last August, actually about a year ago. It was a friend of mine. He's a director of education and public programs over in Portland Art Museum in Oregon. We were on Twitter and he was writing... His, about his frustrations working in a museum field because a lot of folks will, who work in the field will say, you know, we can't do this program, we can't do that, we can't write this in the label, 
um, just a variety of things that they can't do, and they'll say, because the museum has to be neutral. I've been in the museum field for about, oh, over the last 10 years, in and out, and I've heard that response a lot. Um, one place I was at for three years, I had really a lot of great experiences, but I felt so frustrated because often when I would propose programs, I was told that the things I was su suggesting sounded political. And I just sat there going, what, what does that even mean? I mean, everything is political. Like, when you, when you really think about it, I mean, it's kind of obvious to me that things are political within the museum. And, um, I found that as a way just to kind of shut down conversation and just any proposals really quickly. And it happened over and over again. And this is from people who work in museums, and a lot of them have, um, you know, they have at least a bachelor's degree. A lot of them have master's degrees. Some of them have PhDs. And they're going around saying that the museum is this neutral and apolitical kind of space. And I thought that sounds so outrageous because if you've studied museums at all, and I don't think you have to go to college for this, you know that museums are actually cultural products, right? They actually originate from colonialist enterprise. They are political by nature. The whole, the whole construct of what a museum is, is a political thing in itself. And um, like most things in the world, a lot of decisions go into museums. There are people who make decisions. They, 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 things don't just appear in these spaces and just magically are the truth, whatever that is. Um, they are shaped. They are, they are constructed. They are people who are directors of these institutions. There are people who are educators that someone, you know, has decided that they are qualified to make decisions about how to interpret the object. So the label that is up on the wall, somebody's carefully spent a lot of time writing those horrible labels. Um, they're not all bad. <laughs> but I can say that. I work in museums. Um, a lot of times they are bad. <laughs> but a lot of time goes into constructing constructing a particular kind of narrative. Somebody is deciding what to buy. What do we show? Someone's deciding when do we show it, if we ever show it. A lot of things never go on display in museums. If, if you, you know that, they just they don't get out there. Only maybe about 10% of collections are actually exhibited. Um, somebody's deciding how thing, like what things get care and how they're going to be cared for. Um, lots of problems. You know, a lot of objects and collections uh, are by Native American communities, and there's a whole really deep histories about uh, repatriation, people calling for objects to be returned. Also happens in uh, the history of how things have been taken from Africa, from the continent of Africa, been put in institutions. If you've been looking in the news at all, you'll see that I think... Oh, was it Britain or something? I mean, they've been fighting back and forth for a long time. They've been kind of refusing to give objects to Nigeria, and I think recently um, agreed to do a loan, which is really it, like they want to come up with a loan agreement to return objects back to the country where they were stolen from. So that is a political situation. And then the fact that um, where I was working, when I really was just so frustrating to have people tell me that the museum was this neutral space because I, I was sitting there going, I don't believe it. I've been here for years and I've often been the only person of color in the meetings for years. Like, for years. Not the only black person. For years, the only person of color in a meeting and I've been told that this is a neutral environment. And I'm like, that's total bullshit. There's nothing neutral about this. You know, the fact that, and I have no power in this situation over and over again, but I'm being told that that's neutral. That's, this is not political, the fact that it's always this way. So um, I became really frustrated with that, and a lot of other people are too. And um, Mike had written something on Twitter, the statement where he just was like, museums are not neutral. He, I could see he was like, he was just, fed up. And this was after a lot of other things. And he just wrote that. And I thought, that's perfect. That should be on a t-shirt. And then he wrote to me, like, soon after, like, maybe later that night or the next day, he, he um, sent me a, a separate note. And he said, you know, maybe we should do that. We should put it on a t-shirt. And I'm one of these people who's a statement t-shirt. If you know me, I, I have a lot of different t-shirts. Kind of, I have too many t-shirts. Um, and anyway, we decided to do it, and we thought we would make the proceeds go to charity. And so we don't make any money off of this. I wish I did in a way now. Uh, because the shirts have become really popular. We've, we've sold, oh, I think about 1,200 shirts, a little over 1,200 shirts. We've raised about almost $13,000, and the money is all going to charitable institutions. 
Um, so far, we've supported the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, World Kitchen Collective that was helping out in Puerto Rico because of the hurricanes. Um, and now we're supporting, I think I can always mess up the title, Community Foundation of Community Foundation of Health in uh, Greater Flint, so about the, the lead poisoning there. So all the money is going to charity, and the whole point was just to get people who work in museums in one way to kind of tell the, the truth, um, to be more honest about the histories, and to you know acknowledge that this is some, it's a really complicated, nested issues that are happening, and to get more visitors knowing that, and the, the fact that, the, I mean, visitorship, that's a whole other area that's a mess with museums, about who goes to institutions, who feels that these places represent represents them, that welcomes them in these spaces, that's also not a neutral situation. Um, encouraging people, just trying to change the environment within the institution, trying to connect with more uh, folks who teach museum studies, curatorial study programs. We've been, re we've, people have been reaching out to us like faculty members at different schools across the country and asking us to talk with their students about, you know, what is this initiative? You know, what is, what does that mean to talk about the, these constructions of history? And, um, so that's one way we're trying to change the field. And we're also trying to encourage more people who, who are community members to feel empowered to change your institutions. Because I always tell people, that, you know, museums don't own anything. You know, people talk about which each museum and their collection, this and that. But for real, they're caretakers. They don't own things. I mean, really, they don't. They're, it's, it's like, it's the idea of public knowledge and culture is public. It belongs to all of us. And all of us can really change and push at institutions to get them to like get off the fence and stop lying and stop just upholding the, this dominant kind of thing that they've got going. Some of the um, positions that people put forward are that also are highly problematic is this idea of quality. This is something people use a lot. I'm in the art museum field, field so that's where I'm, my focus is um, when I'm talking. So a lot of times art curators and, uh, and folks will say, well, you know, we have to show good art. And I'm always like, well, what is that? I mean, I don't know. I've been studying art history for a long time. I don't really know what that means. I, I, I really, I think about things from a historical point of view. I want to learn about the context of things like that. And of course, I do look at aspects of how something is painted and, and, and things like that too, but I don't really privilege that over, over something else. Um, I haven't yet really found a curator who can tell me what, what that means when they talk about something being a quality object. They usually kind of get out of that really quick. They try to squirm out of that, and they don't want to answer what that means. Um, typically, I guess what they're trying to say is they're talking about certain kind of uh, expertise of technique or something. You know, the fact that someone's painting a certain way, an evolution of someone's style over time. However, there's a lot of ways to evaluate art. That's not not the only way. Sometimes people use that word to to highlight certain art that is more naturalistic versus something else that's more abstracted. But again, that doesn't mean certain forms of art are better than others. So quality is a, a really problematic kind of term, and it's often thrown out there when there are, there's an argument to try to encourage an institution to have more art by like a, a wider scope of people, you know, by other cultures. Um, I've actually had I've heard this in, in multiple, from different people in the field and from in different stages. People, one girl, this is a, a young woman, told me that black artists don't make good art. And she's a, she was in my program in art history, a PhD program, and I was stunned. She said that in class at the beginning of our seminar, and nobody said anything. And I sat there going, what the hell? You know, so it's, it is partly... Sometimes in the field, there's just a lot of people go, oh, well, that's the older generation, and basically when they die off, everything's going to change, you know, just to put it in a very reductive way. Um, I don't think so. You know, a, a lot of the problems in museums, it's the same problems we have throughout our society. So it's not like you go in this space, and it's, as people want to say with the, you know, um, safe space, like you go in here and it's all different. It's a magical world that some imaginary elves have created, and it's all neutral and perfect and great. All of that is a construction, and the same problems that we have in our society at large happen within museums as well. It doesn't change when it, when it, when people are in those spaces. Um, and then that's also tied, so the, the talk about quality, I think also 
is connected to this discussion about the focus on form. People will not want to sometimes talk about certain topics end up being, being called political, right? But everything is political, but only certain ones get marked as political, labeled as political. And so I found it, like, for, in my experience, being highly problematic is um, being a black woman working in a predominantly white institution meant that pretty much anything I said was political. Me showing up, me being in the space was political. It's always political. So everywhere I go, I'm the political one. And um, this isn't, you know, just unique to me. This is, this is for people all, like everybody. And what really frustrates me is that as I've been studying the history of institutions, which is a big part of my work, is to study museums as a cultural product, I learned that, you know, 50 years ago, people already had all these discussions. It's exasperating, really, because you go, wow, damn, like 50 years ago, a lot of artists, a lot of artists of color were um, protesting a museum, especially in the New York area, and highlighting the racism of these institutions and really pushing them to show more art by different, by different people and to have curators and get people on boards, all of this stuff. And this is, this is now the conversation right now. People are having like it's brand new, but it all happened 50 years ago. And I just, I'm like, I am like up to here with that bullshit because I feel like, for real, the way things are going in 50 years, the same conversation will be happening again. Where nothing's happening really, we're just on this really elementary level and nothing's changing much. And I'm like, people need to get fired up and they need to be speaking out more and they need to be telling the truth, as problematic as that is. Yeah. Thank you, wow. Um, there's a lot there. Um, and uh, But I think the point, kind of linking back to what Steve said earlier, this idea that good art was kind of a platonic form, that there is there exists this abstract good art, and of course it reflected certain um, uh, subjectivity that was seen as objective, which was always defined as white and, and et cetera. Wow. All right. Well, um, Anna, uh, you know, so much of the current pub public conversation around truth centers around the media and journalism. And so we really wanted to get a reporter's perspective on this. And, you know, perhaps it's a little bit different. So I'm, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about how you understand the idea of truth in your work as a reporter. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit of nuts and bolts about how reporters make sure what they report is true. Um, you know, because some people, not to name names, think that reporters make things up and and actually present fake news. So I think that would be helpful for you to talk about it. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up subjectivity and objectivity because right now we're kind of having this discussion in journalism right now over, like, what is the standard? Are we supposed to be objective? Is that our goal? And for so long, I think that has been what we've been told that we're supposed to do is be objective. Um, and I, I would rather, like, a philosopher speak to that point. But personally, um, you know, we're all humans we're gathering information, we're, you know, using our senses, we're seeing things, hearing things, um, and we're subjective beings. So I, I think that objectivity is an unreasonable standard for, for journalists. That doesn't mean that, you know, we're all going to see things completely different and you're going to get a different story for every, you know, reporter on every topic, but um, I just think, like, that's a a truth, if you will, <laughs> that we should uh, come to terms with. Um, I had someone that I worked for uh, a while ago, it was actually one of the first people I worked for, described truth in journalism to me in a way that stuck with me. If you remember in trigonometry, the parabola, it's like a equation that it, the shape goes like this, if you guys can see me. Um, and I think, and there's another one that goes like, this and across the x-axis and the y-axis, I got those backwards. Um, the shape, because of the equation, the way the equation is written, to what you said about math being the standard, um, because of the way the equation is written, the line goes on forever along the y-axis and forever along the x-axis without ever touching it. So it just keeps getting closer and closer and closer to infinity. What can someone? Okay, that's what it is, because I'm not the math person. If you can imagine a line literally going on for infinity and never touching the other line, that is what I feel like my role is in arriving at truth. So I'm never going to touch that line. I'm never going to get to truth. 
but I can get as close as possible. The reason I'm never going to get to truth is because in a story, if you can imagine, you know, we've got like every sentence has at least one fact in it. And, a, you know, a story is made up of 1,500, 4,000 words. Um, <clears throat> and there's always going to be like one more source or one more piece of information that tries to answer whatever question we're asking when we write a story. And we, have, we don't have the time in the world to access all of that information, to look at those sources, to call you know, one more person or read one more article to answer that question. Um, and so that, that was a really helpful way for me to think about truth in journalism. That doesn't mean, that's not an excuse. I think that all journalists you know, have a responsibility to be better than we're being right now. Um, but it has less to do with like objectivity and our own bias and our feelings about things and more to do with like hard work and, and time. Like we literally don't have enough time. Um, but it's more about seeking out better sources, seeking out more diverse sources, just working harder, looking at more, uh, research and reading more and just better educating ourselves so that we can better educate the reader. So uh, fact-checking is what that's called. And, um, you know, we, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, to do that. Uh, the Internet is a good start. Um, no, but, and, uh, you know, we, we have to reach out to as many sources as possible, um, you know, looking at peer-reviewed articles, all of those things that we know it means good research. I mean, it really is research. Um, but at the same time, like, Facts are different. So today is Tuesday. That like that's fine. We know that. I think we can call that true. A s legislator so and so voted on a uh, voted for a bill. We can look that up. We know how to do that. That's fine. But if I can give an example of a fact that you've probably read several times in recent months, um, 100 Americans die of an over, uh, opioid overdose every day. That is true. We know it's true because the CDC tells us it's true, and that's the best source that we have for that information. Um, what you don't know when you read that is a pretty important distinction, which is in this whole conversation about the opioid prescription um, situation and cra a crackdown on prescriptions and, and different regulations, is how many of those people died from you know, illegal uh, opioids or prescription opioids. And a lot of time that, that context is left out and it, it makes it so that the reader can't make their own decision about what they think is true. So I wrote a story about, um, opioid prescriptions just last week and it was so difficult because I, I don't think there's a truth there. There's not a, an answer to that problem. There's not an answer to, you know, what needs to be done. And it's very, very, very difficult. Um, I'm, positive that every sentence that I wrote in that story is true. It's factual. But I don't know if the way that I frame the stories is, is the right thing to do, right? Moral even. So that's, that's I think the bigger issue is not like fact-checking. We know how to do that. That's basic journalism. But actually um, just knowing that when you frame a story and the sources that you use and the way that you tell it is true is a completely different animal. It raises an interesting thought of like the difference between facts and truth. Right. Um, Steve started with, you know, basic facts, but the larger meaning of it. Um, Anna, before I let you go, I want to ask one thought about sort of objectivity and bias in journalism. You know, there are, and certainly like you now focus almost exclusively on healthcare and you've been focusing a lot on medical billing. Um, and so you were, that's, a um, effort that is certainly based on facts and you use examples and truth um, but there's obviously kind of I mean someone you or someone else has chosen that, that is an area that's important so yeah, even so like deciding so, what stories are news yeah talk about that so I've been so interested in this and if I can just go on like a little tangent um, we uh, the media TV and newspapers now um we have like ratings. I mean, we have page views that dictate a lot of times what we will cover because we want people to read our stories. And if we see that one story is read more than another, 
that's how we determine what people want to read and we want to, I mean, the first rule of journalism is not give the people what they want, but it is like growing ever closer in that direction. It's going ever closer in that direction. Um, so the reason that I think that's so crazy is because journalists go to school and we study this, or at least we learn in the field, news judgment. And we all, that's something that is a power of ours that we have. And, um, you know, it's, I mean, we train to do it. It's what's most important. You know, there's like the, the five, um, you know, uh, keys of newsworthiness, timeliness, and, you know, how many people it impacts and all of those things. And we know what those are and we can determine what is a story based on those. Um, and it's really news judgment and, you know, we train for that and it's not, uh, the people's um, choice to <laughs> tell us what that is. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, kind of before we throw it to the crowd, I'm going to make one attempt to try to tie these three perspectives together. And again, this may be a big flop. But I want to think about the kind of current context in which we live. And can we connect this philosophical critique of absolute truth to the situation we now face in which notions of truth seem to be kind of contingent upon ideology. Um, this is especially true with news. You think, you know, what one thinks is true is now largely based on one's politics. Fox News presents one narrative, MSNBC presents another, um, I mean, Democracy Now! could be another sort of narrative. Um, so I guess to be cute about it, is our president a postmodernist? No. <laughs> No, he's just a certain kind of politician who, um, who um, makes hay by throwing bombs of uh, you know, provocative opinions, insulting people, and um, provocatively stretching uh, uh, his representations of things. Um, this is my tangent, and it, relating to journalism, if anyone wants to comment on this, I'd be interested. Um, I, I would like to trust the New York Times for my news and for my truth. Um, but unfortunately, the New York Times seems to have decided pretty early in the Trump administration that, um, that the story was going to be his falsehoods, that there was just no, no avoiding this. So every time he says something false, we're going we're gonna to cover it, and we're gonna, it's going to be a front-page story. And so this becomes the very tedious daily New York Times experience of, you know, half the stories on the main page are Trump falsely claims, Trump falsely claims. And, uh, of course, a lot of the time, Trump is falsely claiming things because that's his method. That's his politics. He's, he wants to provoke. And he, there's that salesmanship side of things, too, you know, the, the hyperbole. And, and he's a comedian as well, you know. So he's, he's playing with the truth in, in ways that, that work for him and amazingly successfully. But sometimes... He is just being a very ordinary politician. Sometimes he will just, he will just sort of burnish the latest e economic statistics in his own favor the way any politician would. And, and, and his interpretation of the, the facts are contentious, but any politician's interpretation would be contentious. But the New York Times solemnly informs us that Trump falsely claims. And to me, the New York Times is out of line there. They have gone too far and they are they, they have they have really fallen into his trap because people can now read the new york times and say oh the negativity is out of control there no matter what trump does they're going to fault him for it and there's there's quite a bit of truth to that the way the way things are now playing out on the on the front page of america's newspaper of record so i i see trump as not not nearly a postmodernist he's he's not nearly uh reflective or uh, or clever to that degree I think he's a very, a very ordinary kind, certain kind of politician who has, has just kind of hit a sweet spot of success playing the mass media the way he does. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about, about the idea of, um, of like narratives. So, um, you know, um, certainly, I mean, Latanya, the idea that sort of museums put forth a certain narrative, and there are different narratives. And it seems, seems to me a lot of your work is trying to expand those narratives, to have them be more inclusive and more accurate. Um, that's certainly what we see, I think, with the two museums. Um, but, I mean, you know, 
if you just read the New York Times and watch CNN, you're getting a very, very different narrative than if you watch Fox News or you read other sort of news sources. So, I mean, is that okay? I mean, is there something wrong? I mean, should we be trying to have one narrative or one truth from which we can judge as to what's going on? And if we can't, that seems to be kind of a postmodern predicament. Quickly, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a philosophical scruple about the property of truth. The property of truth doesn't attach to things. It attaches to propositions. That sounds kind of pedantic, but I think it's a tremendously important point to, to bear in mind. Um, it's statements that are true and false. It's our representations of things that are true and false. And given that we all have different subjective perspectives, given that we're coming from different communities, histories, with different interests, different grievances, <laughs> etc. Um, of course, the, the, uh, there will not be one truth. There cannot be one truth. Truth pertains to our attempts to, to track how things are. It's funny, we don't really have a word for how things are. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to say that phrase in a certain way to get you to think of it. But truth and falsehood has to do with what we say about how things are. And of course, we're all going to say that differently because we're, we're we have because we're finite, because we have particular histories, particular passions and interests, and so forth. So obviously, what you want is not a single true story, but you want a good conversation among stories and propositions. Um, and what's so distressing about the polarized conversation of American politics today is there's no evidence that anybody's trying to track how things are. The evidence is all that people are stubbornly insisting on a certain way of portraying how things are. They're, and you know, they, so they just pass each other in the night. And, and we look in vain for you know, a newspaper of record that would just you know, tell us what people said and, and not completely contaminate it with an ideological reading of what the people really meant and what's really going on. Yeah. I'm curious, and I mean, so how does that conversation look within the clarion ledger and journalism, if, you know, whether you guys are biased or what, you know, whether you're whether there is a um, fake news. Yeah, fake, fake news. Um, well, can I just say one thing to your point? Like, the way things are, you're talking about reality, which is our own. But we have shared experiences, shared realities. And I, and I wrote about this um, several months ago or last fall about, like, how we can overcome our biases and how we can you know, cut through that, and it's really just sharing together. It's experience. It's it's being together and talking and getting to know one another. Um, I just wanted to say that because I feel very strongly about it. <laughs> um, you know, getting over our biases by just really learning about one another, uh, because otherwise we pass in the night, like you said. Um, fake news. Uh, I feel like it's not my responsibility to uh, convince anyone of anything. Um, I'm not here to convince people. I'm just here to write what I learn about. Um, so I'm not, I, I examine my biases every day, like I just said. That's one way I do that, by getting to know people and, um, you know, experiencing different things. Um, but I don't think it's my responsibility to do anything other than that. And I examine my own biases so that I become a better reporter you know, if someone just doesn't want to listen to it or call us fake news, there's not really much I can do about that. I, I just want to be the best reporter that I can. Um, I mean, how did, sort of any response to the idea of, like, of different narratives and the importance of widening the narrative? I mean, is there, in your work, are you trying to get to a better, more accurate truth or narrative, or are you buying into that there are... I'm just trying to have different ones. A, That's a terrible question. Yeah, but I, I understand what you're saying. Um, there is an ex, you know a spectrum, but it, and I do think that museums should try to incorporate more perspectives, you know, from a wider array array of people. And at the same time, I feel a struggle with this because you know now we're we're also living in an era of all this talk about. Um, well, everything's this. Well, I guess it's always been, always been the issue. Really, everything's the same. You know, like we we can put okay, we can tell your story, but 
you know, if we have a neo-Nazi person that wants to come in the institution, because we're an inclusive institution, that person's perspective is just as valuable or whatever than as yours. So you kind of, and I don't, I don't see those as equivalent, but that is kind of an increasing um, problem within institutions because it's like, well, if we're going to be inclusive, we have to welcome everybody's story and that's, you know, that's just their perspective and it's just as valid as your experience of, you know, genocide or something. Um, that is really messed up. So in some ways, you know, it's, it's odd because I personally, I, I don't really, um, aspire to be, I don't really push for inclusion so much. This is where my own perspectives have been really changing over the last few years. Um, of course, all the time, you know, one is learning, hopefully. But in the last few years, I've been changing my vocabulary a lot. So something I might have written three, two or three years ago, I talked a lot about inclusion. And now I'm like, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really fighting for inclusion. I think that's kind of bullshit because, um, I don't really want to be included in crap environments. Like, I'm putting it just in a simple way because a lot of places are really messed up. And, and what I've found is it's become a thing like, well, you can just be part of this messed up environment. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm really working for transformation. I want to transform the institutions and I want to break them down. And that, you know, people get scared. Um, that's not good when you're on the job market so much which I am, um, but <laughs> when you say things like this, people get, people get frightened because they've got a lot at stake, you know, and they worry about, well, what's, you know, what, what does that mean? What does that entail? In, in art history, we have this whole thing that we call the canon, and probably everybody has a, uh, no, 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 everybody, but, you know, you have these certain figures that you uphold as, like, these are, you know, leading um, individuals as artists or the, whatever, certain, certain objects and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I, so why I was like, I don't know, journalism, they, they might have something like this, I don't know. Um, but people, I've, I've given talks and someone raised their hand once and said, so what does that mean for the canon, though? Like, what you're talking about would disrupt this structure that's been created. You would be, you know, trying to fit in other people or other people, people would, like, get toppled out. You know, people we uphold as, like, the best artists or whatever, the most important artists of what this certain century or something. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. That's good. That's what we need. We need to shake it up. We need to move on. And because personally, I'm not, I'm not vested in that so much. I never had anything to do with shaping that canon. So many people did not. Um, you know, art history is a, which is my area, it's a very exclusionary field. I mean, I think most, most of the disciplines are, um, in academia, but art history is like very, like, it's a bit rigid, you know, it doesn't want to change. Um, there's been some movement in other areas, like the whole fact that in history there's a, there's a particular genre of history you can do called public history. Like what we're doing right now, public humanities and stuff. And our history can, can be part of that, but it often doesn't really want to be. It really, and I, you know, I'm saying this as an art historian, this is my field, and I, I spend a lot of time though, being in public humanities kind of circles and working with pu people who identify as public history. And I, I came back to my department one day and I said, you know, we, how come we don't have a public art history? How come that doesn't exist? And people are just like, what are you talking about? You know, they don't, they don't want to, to go there. Um, so yeah, I'm fine with disrupting the canon. I don't, I don't privilege it. I, I find a lot of it highly problematic. A lot of the people, not surprisingly, who are part of the canon are white and they're men. Um, yeah, there's a lot of art that's by a lot of different kind of people that is valuable to be discussed and to talk about, to learn the histories of it, what it means for those communities. Um, yeah, so I'm perfectly good with that. I'm interested in revolution. That's, that's what I'm about. Not so much about inclusion. So it, it's tricky. And so I, I don't adhere to the thought that everybody's position, if somebody is about basically um, dehumanizing groups of people, their position to me is not valuable to be in this institution. You know, that, that's, that's like the, the thing for me. That's the crux there. And that's, um, I feel like that shouldn't be such a radical statement, but it is in the environment we're in right now in museums. That's something where people get like, whoa, they got to back away from that. And I'm like, wow, that's, see, this is the problem. The fact that I'm saying that I don't want to support people who are about dehumanizing groups of folks. That's, that's a problem. I'm the one who's the problem. 
and I'm like, that's just, yeah, completely messed up. So I'm not, I'm not supportive of that kind of thing. I do think there should be a lot of different narratives, but we have to be careful about like what that really means. Yeah, no, that's, wow, that's great. Well, we've got some time for some questions. If there are any questions from the audience, I know there is uh, lots of different points and directions here, but does anybody have a question? Uh, in the back. So talking about uh, online clicks and how people are now getting their news filtered through social media that steers them in a certain direction and then the monetization of that, maybe? Yeah, so I've... Um, I believe in like separation of church and state as far as I'm a journalist and I'm a reporter I'm on this end and I don't know anything about sales or how our ads get done or any of it and I choose not to um, because I don't really want to know about that but um, I will say that I think the future is media literacy I think that we've got to teach people at a very young age how to consume information and how to um, make wise decisions about what they're consuming. So the Clarion Ledger is a uh, legitimate news organization and you can go to clarionledger.com and get news that you can rely on. Um, you can't do that on Facebook um, and you've got to be careful about what you're clicking on on Facebook to make sure that you're you know, consuming good information. Um, as far as like the fact that this Facebook thing has just gotten really crazy and it's kind of messing everything up for everybody. Um, and it does, there is like a, I can see what I think your point is, is that there's like a, um, an incentive to put that stuff out there because people are clicking on it and like you see with the cable news uh, tele uh, TV stations like we want our own ideas about things validated, and so we seek out those sources that, you know, we think are going to agree with our existing beliefs. Um, I truly think that just um, being better educated about it and having greater media literacy is the answer to that. Any other questions? I guess this is uh, mostly directed to Latanya. I like what you said about our tendency to kind of conflate neutrality and truth, um, and. And so for something to be a, like a representation of pure art needs to be true and therefore neutral, which is obviously bullshit, right? So how, what are the implications for that for art in public spaces? If we can decide that, it's, that art has the potential to improve our shared environment, how do we fairly curate sh public art? And then the loaded question is for if our past selves have put things up um, that, we, that are, offend our current selves, how do we deal with that? Thanks. I think both of those were loaded questions, um, <laughs> which is good and, and, and it's fair. Um, yeah, public art. Well, I think there needs to be a lot more community involvement um, in in dialogue. I think a lot of times, what people in public art is kind of an area where I'm, I'm really interested in, and I work in, in memorial culture in particular. Um, it seems like a lot of times communities aren't really part of the decision making so much you know what happens is they bring in there's this idea of the expert who comes in you know somebody like me um, who has certain kind of schooling or whatever and certain experiences and then they get hired in and sometimes they're not from the area at all like me and then they they move somewhere <laughs> So funny when you realize it's you who's the problem. Uh, you you move somewhere and then you make decisions. You go, hey, I know this really great artist from wherever, New York or something. I'm gonna put this here. I'm gonna plop this. We're gonna hire, bring this person in because this is they're making really great art and and maybe they really are right in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and then we we put them here and then we go, hey, everybody, come here, come to come to see this thing. And people are like, what the heck is that? I, you know, we hate that. That's not what we need in our community. And then you're surprised. Um, but what, why don't people not like what I've done? I'm this fancy person. Um, so anyway, I'm being a little funny, but it, it, in some ways it's reflective um, of my experience and of many people who are like me. What I try to do is think about it more of, I think it's fine and it's good to bring in people from with different viewpoints, but a lot of times we need a lot, a lot of a lot more time listening to communities, right? And really just meeting people and going to meet people in a broad way, not just a few certain folks who come to 
you know, who self-identify or who have a lot of money and show up for these kind of great art events. And I think, also, unfortunately, a lot of times public art stuff is decided by just a few people. A handful of people are deciding things. Uh, one of my friends lives in Atlanta. And she was telling me about this mural that got put up. I think it was across from a playground and a church or something, and it had some some nudity in it, you know. And I think I saw it, and I didn't think it was that much, but the, when I learned about, like, where it was placed, and the community wasn't, the people who lived there in, you know, the schools and the church, they weren't consulted at all. It, and it was one of these things where they brought some artists, I think, from Europe in, who worked with a public arts commission, and they were like, it's great, you do what you want. And they put up the mural, and people were very upset in the community, and they were like, what? how could you put this across from a playground? Especially because it was across from a playground. And the uh, public arts group thought, you know, why are they, you know, what, what's wrong with these people? Why, don't, why are they giving us trouble? That's censorship. And they immediately jumped to the claim of censorship. And that happens a lot in, in, um, in the art world, this, whatever that thing is, is that people call the art world. I think a lot of us need to be more a part of communities, like showing up and really being, like going to things and really listening to people and valuing their perspectives even if they don't have a PhD. Because guess what? A whole lot of people don't have PhDs. I don't have a PhD. Not for real. Um, yeah, I'm working on it, but I don't have one. And a lot of people's perspectives are extremely valuable and they know a lot of things. And we could all be kind of shaping more. It's not, not so much to just say we're going to automatically not do things, but to be more, to make things more communal. The other part of that, um, the discussion about removing objects, again, I think that's, it should be a lot more community dialogue. And, you know, we have to talk about what, what objects we're talking about. You know, certain ones, again, we, not all of them are, weighted the same way, I think, you know, when we're talking about Confederate monuments, um, that's one, that's one really particular kind of, um, political context there, and, uh, versus something, you know, I don't know, some, some kind of mural of whatever, some kind of certain object. Um, anyway, I think dialogue with communities needs to happen, and the thing with the, the objects that people want to remove, well, that's, that has, like everything, you know, like with the thing in the museum, it seems like this really particular exclusive environment just for a few folks. Well, the reality is it's, it's connected to all of these deep problems we have in our society, right? And that's why people are really inflamed about these things. And we have to recognize this thing called historical trauma. And, you know, it's, these things aren't isolated and are frozen in time. Things in public space, monuments, memorials, they are kind of have this ongoing life and they are connected. And we have to really be sensitive to the, to the real life experience of that. And we could have a whole panel on that. So I'm going to just shut up right now. Um, maybe time for one more question, sir. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the, your perspectives and opinions. Um, to kind of preface this, um, I'm a researcher, so my job is to generate knowledge. Uh, to be factual as much as I can in terms of um, the problems within the philosophy of science and research and science methodology and everything like that. So my perspective or my kind of question is, is that my role as a researcher is to convince funders to give me money to do research, right? So I have to convince them that this is factual, that this is truth. In the same way, we hopefully have an influence on policymakers. And so this goes back to the point that Anna said, um, in terms of maybe not trying to convince people isn't necessarily the job, but it's to inform people. But in terms of what we try to do with research as well is to try to generate knowledge that can hopefully have an influence on policy or have an influence really on uh, potentially funding mechanisms that can be done to influence a certain problem. So all that to be said, is there uh, a way in which is or what what is your golden standard? And this is to everybody, I guess. What is the, what would be your ideal kind of way of trying to convince someone that something is a truth? Maybe if that in the in the context of maybe it's politicized or in the context of they might not understand it. Or how would you go about? I guess what I guess kind of understanding kind of what your gold standard is in that area in that idea. I mentioned when I was presenting Descartes that uh, he was uh, offering a program that he thought would work out great in terms of being able to build on the foundations and keep building. And I think this is a very appealing aspect of science, that we generally believe that scientists are, are building on each other's work and that the edifice of scientific knowledge keeps growing. Um, so it's not just a continual scramble 
to see whose opinion is going to be dominant today and tomorrow. It's, it's a cumulative, constructive process. And something like that is going on in all the fields. I mean, in, in philosophy, in, in all the canons, you know, like Plato, Descartes, Derrida, you know, there's this... I teach that stuff as a growing edifice of philosophical insight. Uh, I think art and literature are supposed to be like that, right? So, the, you know, the, the quote-unquote great artists are very aware of each other, and, you know, they're, they're building on each other's achievements, and you can... You really feel like you're going somewhere, and I see it all the time that rationales for new art, uh, rationales for shows or for grants, um, the, you know, the artist will, will will claim or will be claimed to be building on some specific tradition that goes through famous people, you know, and, and questions Renaissance perspective, or you know, anyway, it taps into that big story, so that once again, it's not, it doesn't just feel like a scramble. Who's who's the flavor of the month? It feels like oh, we're in this growing edifice of valuable uh, cognitive property. Wow. Um, well, hopefully this panel added to that cognitive property, the expansion of it. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, uh, I thought this, this is, I wrote lots of thoughts and ideas, and I hope that you have at least in your mind those as well. We, speaking of facts, we have a sign-in sheet. If you were not yet sure what next month's is going to be. We have a rough idea. We don't have the details yet. So if you want to get those facts, those truths, please have our sign-in sheet that Caroline has control of. Um, and finally, um, I want to kind of leave you with this. This is kind of like, a, I guess, kind of a Jerry Springer move, kind of the closing thought. Isn't that right? Anyway, uh, it's scary, yeah. And it kind of goes back to what I think amongst all the courses I took in college, what I took away from that and was kind of reminded tonight was to be a critical thinker, be a critical reader, question your truths, right? Question your media sources. If you're only listening to a certain narrative, push yourself out of your comfort zone and try to see the world from someone else's eyes. It's not always fun, <laughs> I can speak personally, but um, I think if we all become more, more philosophical and more critical in how we view the world, that we will get to a better place. Thank you. If we have any more food left, I don't know if we do or not, you're welcome to it. It just started raining, so y'all can hang out till it passes. But thanks again for coming. We'd like to thank the Flamingo for hosting us. If you'd like to join us for next month's edition of Ideas on Tap, check out our website, mshumanities.org, for more information. Ideas on Tap is recorded in front of a live local audience in Jackson, Mississippi. This podcast is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Mississippi Humanities Council. For more information on Ideas on Tap, please visit mshumanities.org.